0: How is the sound in the back? Can you hear? Yes? A little louder? Can you turn it up a little bit? How about now? Better? It's always unsatisfactory in one way or another, right? (laughs) The ones that need it louder have an issue and then the the ones that, for whom it's too loud, have an issue. Isn't that just the way it is, you know? I think that's part of what the Buddha was talking about when he was talking about dukkha. First noble truth. You can never quite get it the way you want it to be and keep it that way. Slippery, isn't it? You know, that sense of like, okay, it's all come together. I've got it now. You probably notice this for yourself even in your sittings, right? I've got it now. I've got it now. <laughs> Next sit you walk in, and it's like, oh, sh. <laughs> what happened? And you go through your little mental Rolodex of, let's see, I came in, I sat down the same way. then I did the same thing at the beginning just like that last time when it worked really well and so why, why, why is it the way that it is why is it bad now when it was good just a while ago things are complex, right there's a lot of different causes and conditions that go into creating any experience that we would have And we only control or influence some of those causes and conditions. Have you noticed that? (laughs) (laughs) Yet somehow we have this very deep desire or expectation that we should be able to have a span of control that's different than what we actually have. So you could say that uh, difference between the way we want things to be, the way we need things to be, and how things actually are, you could say that is suffering. Now it is true, it is the case, that in some ways we can reduce the amount of suffering that we have by learning how to work with our attention and our intention of starting to understand what's the wise relationship with experience that will lead us to having the most upside and the least downside in terms of both what arises moment to moment but also in terms of how we relate to it. We're looking we're looking for the formula This is part of our our inheritance as problem-solving beings. And the Buddha went through a very similar kind of process himself. Um, Those of you who know anything about his bio realize that he, he set off on a big quest to understand how suffering was created and how it could be relieved. And in the process of doing that, he went to a lot of different methods and practiced them to a high degree of mastery. He went, uh, he was brought up with a lot of ease and wealth so he had a full a full dollop of what it's like to go the pleasure route and then he left all of that and went the renunciation way and then he went in the direction of developing concentration and then he went in the direction of extreme austerities only to find out none of it worked. Now, if he was a, a typical human being, he probably would have bagged it after the, the first attempt. But since he was a bodhisattva, he he continued on with his experimentation. And then he sat down and said, ah, Let me just sit here. I have all these attributes of heart and mind. My mind is strong, it's pliant, it's luminous. There's mindfulness there, there's clear seeing there. What if I just turn my attention in a very direct way towards my own experience and watch, watch and see how suffering arises and how it can cease. So that's his process of looking into the matter, the great matter. And of course, through his powers of observation, he was able to see what leads to what, what arises with what, what is linked to a following kind of experience, what causes the arising of happiness, and well-being, what causes the arising of what you might want to call discretionary human suffering. So then, when he figured it out for himself and fully liberated his mind, then he was in an interesting situation, because then he had to figure out the most important thing, which was, how do you explain this to people? Because the people that he was going to be talking to weren't people who had gone through these many years of exploration and practice. They weren't going to be people who, if you take to the classical view, had many lifetimes of the development of the paramitas to support that practice. They were not people who were starting with a mind that was already uh, well-developed in many ways, but just didn't understand. They were like lumping along like us. (laughs) So it's a mark of his great genius that he was actually able to take his own journey and his own observations and put it into a system of explanation and practice that he could then offer to other people in dialogue with them to kind of tell them what's what. This is what's really going on. This is how reality works for us humans. This is how we get tripped up. This is how we get enmeshed. This is how uh, we're ignorant. And this is what we can do to untangle that mess. To get free from the entrapment in Illusion that keeps us fighting the stream of reality. And instead of fighting the stream of reality, instead of fighting the stream of causation through ignorant craving, we can actually start to understand how to get on the upside, how to get on the liberating or super mundane way that reality works. This is what you got to do, said the Buddha. This is what must be done. So th- this is, these are the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So anything that we teach here is coming from this. And you'll see us approach it in many different ways many different teachings will be offered, but they're all part of this. Teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which is basically the the high-end problem statement and solution. Um, and then the drop-down menu, <laughs> the Eightfold Path. So it's an amazing act of genius, and One of the most remarkable things about the whole system is how it's been carried uh, with fidelity for 2,600 years until uh, very recently, almost completely by Asian cultures. So, we human beings, we mess up a lot of stuff. But this we haven't messed up, because this still has its liberating power intact. So, we can reflect on the power and the beauty of this mind-to-mind transmission for 2600 years, where someone would practice the teachings as they, they heard them and received them from a teacher, very often a monk or a nun. Practice these in community, would come to awakening. The next generation of awakened minds would teach those who followed like that. Like one candle lighting another in an unbroken chain. So you're part of that. You're part of that now. So, Bonte last night... uh, Touched on a lot of different things, but he talked about the Four Noble Truths in, uh, in particular. So I won't spend too much time on that tonight, except to say we'll be doing a further deep dive into that. But I'm going to talk mostly tonight about the second step on the Eightfold Path, which is wise intention. Wise intention. So it's an interesting thing, if you look at the position of this particular aspect of the Eightfold Path, wise intention, it's the second step. What's immediately in front of it is wise view, which is basically the Four Noble Truths, (laughs) and uh, mundane wise view, the truth of, of karma in particular. So, wise intention is second, though. With wise intention, we're getting into operationalizing some of the insights of the Four Noble Truths. And the fact that it's second is significant, because it's telling you, this is the compass, these are orienting principles for the whole practice path. If you understand that these should always be read into everything else that's being said or everything else that's being cultivated, you won't go too far wrong. So this is uh, part of the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. So if you're gonna look at the question that wise intention answers it is what's the direction of the practice, where is it heading? What attitudes of mind are being cultivated as part of the practice and while I practice and what attitudes of mind need to be present to and in the practice for transformation to occur? So this is a very important perspective that's being given and it's an answer to be to the question what is to be developed and what is to be let go so what is wise intention what are we actually cultivating in terms of attitude of mind so the buddha says wise intention is the intention of renunciation the intention of non ill will the intention of harmlessness. This is called wise intention. So the first of these he mentions is is renunciation, and then the second two things that he he mentions is uh, non ill will and intention of harmlessness. You could read that as uh, metta and compassion, right? So that's that's the trifecta. So. Let's take a little bit deeper look at what they are and what they mean. So let's take renunciation first, which is a very interesting piece of it. And probably the more difficult of these to understand. So in our car- culture, I know we come from a lot of different cultures, so but there is a ge- kind of generic modern Or postmodern Western culture, renunciation sounds a little bit like denunciation, right? Renunciation, denunciation. Um, Maybe it's got a resonance uh, upon first hearing uh, something like uh, being a killjoy, you know, being a party pooper, uh, a bit of a Grinch, renunciation, you know. Renunciation. But those kinds of associations in this context actually are inaccurate. So we don't practice renunciation in order to punish ourselves or to suppress joy. But it's about not getting uh, stuck on, or limited to, sources of pleasure which block higher happiness and freedom. It's about not stopping short. And you know, we all, all know that there are many sources of human happiness, right? Pizza was good at lunch. <laughs> right? The, the leaves, you know, can be beautiful this time of year. Uh, shower feels good in, in the evening. Um, you know when you put on that particular uh, pair of pants they fit good you know if you, th- if you think about your partner or your dog it makes you smile, you know there are many forms of, of happiness. There's, there's a whole uh, practice in the Brahma Viharas called mudita where we're inclining the mind to recognize the happiness of others and be happy because of it. There's a whole practice of gratitude that uh, we can do that reminds us of what we have and gladdens our heart and mind. So renunciation is not an anti-happiness campaign. But rather, training in renunciation allows us to let go of an addictive kind of relationship to pleasant. And this allows us to set a wise course and direction for our lives in action without being governed by our reactions to Vedana. Vedana, have you heard that word? Is that a new word for folks? Well, we'll be talking a good bit about that. We're going to be talking uh, also about dependent origination, which is an important teaching of the Buddha that really uh, dovetails very closely with this, this mental experience of Vedana or feeling tone. But for now, I'll just say that Vedana has to do with our subjective experience of whether something in real time is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the teaching is, I won't go too far into this, but the teaching is, with every mental arising, and there are many, many mental arisings, um, with every arising, there is the arising of a feeling tone, this quality of pleasant, unpleasant neutrality with physical sensations. And so what does the untrained mind do with that? Let's say, if you had a selectometer like I talked about at the beginning, there's the pleasant and the unpleasant, pleasant and the unpleasant. Which one would you like to set your selectometer to? this one right this one we don't want the unpleasant one and you know a good amount of this is biologically based as well as learned behavior right just organically you know we come out with some uh, preference for what's pleasant Mama, right here, kid. Even when you look at you know how human beings are usually created, <laughs> no, there's very often some pleasant in that, right? <laughs> we're we're kind of set up to, you know, follow this in an evolutionary kind of way. And sometimes there can, there can be wisdom in it, and it can be very wholesome. But what happens if we don't have any capacity to meet the more neutral experiences or the more difficult or unpleasant experiences? When you look at something like how um, addiction is created, Right? You can see what's going on in there. Unpleasant experience. Physical or emotional unpleasant experience. Substance pleasant. Unpleasant experience from using substance. Substance pleasant. Right? So this is a way of saying we can't necessarily take uh, an unquestioning attitude towards this preference for pleasant. Because you know for yourself that sometimes you need to go upstream. Have you noticed that? You can even see it for yourself here on retreat. Even if you just got here. It's like, oh God, you know. Oh, my device. I really don't want to. I don't want to give it up. But you did, right? Why did you do that? <laughs> you may be asking yourself that very question right now. Why did I do it? Well you you did it in part because you're like, okay, yeah, I reach for it a lot. It's got value, it's got a lot of pleasant and it's it's my ball and chain, right? It's like it's my world has shrunk down to scrolling. Some way or another, perhaps, I'm no longer connected to myself, let alone to other people. It's all mediated through this. And yet, there's a pull, right? It's like a tractor beam. I'll just surf a little bit more. So renunciation is about priorities, really. And it's a value statement that assumes that the most important thing for us is actually bhavana, the cultivation and development of the heart and mind in the direction of liberation. So why is this assumption made, that this is the most important thing for us Bhavana? Because we're assuming that you're on board with the observation of the Four Noble Truths, at least tentatively, right? That there is suffering, there is dukkha. That there is uh, a cause of this dukkha, this suffering, which is a kind of ignorant craving that there is the possibility to be free of this craving and then the method of the Eightfold Path to do it. So how does renunciation relate to this? Well, you know, if we assume that the cause of human suffering of the type we're talking about here is deluded craving, then we ought not follow craving if we want to be free. Because it's kind of like drinking seawater. You know, it just creates more of the same. It increases the thirst and doesn't satisfy it. So we need to let go of craving and not follow the path of entanglement with it if we want to be free. So to choose bhavana, to choose this desire for the development of the heart and mind in the direction of liberation, is actually a values choice that guides decisions both on the micro and the macro level. And these determine our life direction and whether or not we become more enmeshed with craving and suffering or whether we move towards freedom. So if uh, our priority is awakening, then we don't want to be controlled by the pursuit of pleasure as a determinant value. So with this we can let go of enchantment with sense pleasures and using sense pleasures as both the goal and the measure of things. So sometimes we need to swim against the current. Now you may think from what I've been saying, or you may fear from what I've been saying, that pleasure is a problem. But those of you who know the life of the Buddha will remember that one of the failed experiments that he did was to undertake austerities to the point where he nearly died. So this was one of the strategies of the time. So instead of just relying on concentration and entering into beautiful states and residing there and finding that the beautiful states were impermanent and then you're back down to earth. He took the other direction was like, "Oh, well, okay, maybe what I need to do now is like punish the body and make it give it up. Give up the spirit. Come on. Free the spirit from the body and the body's needs and the body's urges and the body's senses. We are not going to give you anything. Anything." No food, no water, you name it. Nothing pleasant. And he found it didn't work. Didn't work. That inducing the unpleasant was not it. And actually he had this memory of this time when he was a boy watching his father plow a field in some sort of spring festival that his tribe had how the the trees were blooming and people were there and was happy and he was sitting under a tree and it was happy and peaceful and he felt joy and he remembered that and he was like and the thought came to him well is there anything huh is there anything really wrong with that happiness that, that joy is pleasure wrong? And he realized no, pleasure's not wrong. That's not the right way to think of it. Pleasure's not wrong. So the thing about sense pleasures isn't that they're wrong or should be rejected it's that they have limited ability to provide lasting satisfaction. So they don't warrant being made the measure of things. They're not the main compass to use if we want to be happy. Now, there's a very paradoxical thing that happens now. So the, the Buddha opens to the wholesome, pleasant says that he found no fault in it. So this is when he moves directly towards enlightenment. When he's including both awareness of the pleasant and the unpleasant in a balanced kind of way. And the paradox of the whole thing is part of what happens with the spiritual path, with bhavana, is as the mind inclines more organically to renunciation, you actually get happier and more at ease. And you often experience more and deeper pleasure. And what makes you happy tends to change to become more refined. And there's actually more joy and more happiness. And why? In part because we cease producing the conditions which create suffering. We cease creating the conditions in which craving thrives. So the second aspect of wise intention, the practice and cultivation of non-harming, this is also a value statement. So if you want to liberate your mind, if you want to be happy, train it in the attitude of non-harming. Why does non harming make you happy? It's an interesting question, right? Because in order to harm, in order to harm, both ignorance and aversion have to be present. And when we act on ignorance and aversion, it strengthens those tendencies of mind. Which means that we have these kinds of arisings more often and stronger. You ever hear this gym slogan, something like, uh, what you train you gain? So if you practice aversion and harming a lot, then you develop a mind that's inclined towards aversion and towards harming. So this metta, this loving kindness, should be cultivated towards yourself and towards others. And also towards what you experience internally, towards your own subjective experience. Karuna, compassion, likewise should be cultivated towards yourself and others and towards what you experience internally. So these are particular intentions of mind that we cultivate deliberately. You ever have the thought or have said or heard somebody else say something along the lines of that's just how I am or that's who I am that's interesting because it kind of claims a certain kind of fixity it's just how I am take it or leave it or I'm always a screw up or I'll never be able to practice metta or whatever it is. The Buddha would say there actually is no fixity. And that you're uh, an open system of lawfully arising experiences. And that you can, through the cultivation of mindfulness and wisdom and wise intention actually, over time, change the nature of the arisings that you experience. It's kind of a wild thought. So if you think about some of the social aspects of this. Developing a mind that's inclined towards and committed to non-harming allows us to be trustworthy and trusted. We can become the kind of person that is a unifier and inclusive supporting reconciliation and harmony. Or maybe even somebody who can help halt these deeply conditioned cycles of dukkha by injecting something new, something not conditioned by the fight, flight, seize or freeze instincts that humans have. So we can become a more constructive being in our external actions as members of a society or group. So, these aspects of goodwill and compassion are relational in nature. So, they are reflected outwardly as well as inwardly. On the inward level, this non harming can actually end the internal war, the turning of the system back against itself as a kind of reaction to its own distress you ever have the experience of something's going wrong and you're already having a hard time and the mind goes you fuck up (laughs) and you always will be you know we can be so mean right our minds can be so mean maybe no maybe not. nobody here has that kind of mind ever as if you didn't didn't know you are already suffering yeah I'm suffering but it's my own damn fault because I'm so focused. stupid or sometimes we'll go Why do I keep? Dun, 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 dun. Sometimes that'll come up in practice meetings. Why do I? Dun, 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 dun. And of course, you know, there's psychological underpinnings for some of these conclusions we make about ourselves. But dharma t- dharma teachers is, is likely to more go well because that's how your mind's conditioned. So the mind is is conditioned that way. It's conditioned to kind of be mean and not really be self-supporting. Can that change? Yes. Will these trainings support that change? Yes. So this non-harming intention and practice Supports unification of mind where the system responds to the inner knowing of difficulty and pain with kindness, self-support, and foundational loyalty. Now that would be a nice mind to have, a mind that's loyal to itself. So these are really powerful things. Powerful attitudes to meet arising states. So you see from what I've said, is the Buddhist practice isn't a head-only training. So you get right down in there, right down to the level of instinctual desires, which is our reaction, our organic reaction to Vedana, as well as working directly with how we think about reality, often unconsciously, and working directly with the emotional levels of the mind as well. Our emotions, our habits. So I said the the second step of the Eightfold Path, Wise Intention, is part of the wisdom path, and it's the orienting compass. I said the orienting compass, the whole practice path is towards renunciation, Goodwill and compassion. So then if you go back and look at what follows in the Eightfold Path, what do you get next? The sila, or the morality steps of the path. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. It's saying, okay, you want to be fr- free from craving, you want to be free from suffering, You want to cultivate renunciation and non-harming and goodwill? Look at how you're talking. Look at the things that you're doing. You know, are you stealing, robbing, assaulting, lying, doping, killing? How are you making your How are you making your loot? Not through looting, I hope. So, can you say that's an outflow of wise intention? The Buddha says in particular, look at these things in particular. You take care here. Take care in your ways of action. And if you look beyond those three steps the morality pieces of the Eightfold Path then you get to wise effort which is a huge topic and very deep and nuanced but basically what wise effort is here the Buddha is saying this is what you're trying to do you're trying to Uh, not have unwholesome states and actions arise and if they do arise you want to act in a way that mitigates them and you want to encourage, invite recognize and strengthen wholesome states and attitudes and actions so how do you know the difference between Wholesome and unwholesome. That's the, the axis, right? States born of delusion, states born of aversion, and states born of craving, unwholesome. Intentions, delusional intentions, aversive intentions, craving clinging intentions. Basically saying, Yeah, you don't need more of those. Uh, those you don't want to cultivate. They're not leading you in a good way. But the other ones, states born from generosity, wisdom, compassion, metta. Ah, that that's what you want to cultivate. You want more of that you want more of that in your mind stream, you want more of that in your actions. That's the seeds that you want to plant. There's where you want to cultivate, right there, that kind of thing. And then, in the classical unfolding of the Eightfold Path, then you get to wise mindfulness and wise concentration. And those are two of your primary tools to actually do these cultivations. Mindfulness allows you to recognize your experience in real time. What are you actually experiencing in real time? Is it wholesome? Is it unwholesome? What's the Vedana you're experiencing in, in real time? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? What kind of intentions are there in real time? And then cultivation-wise, cultivation has the property of helping to suppress unwholesome states of mind. And to more powerfully cultivate that which is onward leading. It gives us a kind of depth in our ability to insee into what's happening in real time for ourselves. So this is, you know, a holographic kind of system because all of it is, re- is reflected in any piece of it and any piece of it reflects all of it so these are some of the, the many teachings that you're going to be receiving over the next six weeks to help you deepen in your understanding of what we're actually doing here So the most amazing thing about it, or one of the most amazing things about it to me, is that the kind of learning that you do here really draws on all dimensions of your being. Because a lot of it is experiential. What do I mean by that? How is suffering created? Suffering is created by a diluted clinging. how do you de- recognize deluded clinging? Because you're suffering. <laughs> <laughs> I started with an example at the beginning of, you know, I was kind of fooling around with you, but, you know, coming into the meditation hall and, you know, you come in and, you know, the last one was pretty good or maybe you've had a string of them that were, you know, good and you come back, and you come in and they, you sit down and it's like, It's a big storm. I don't like that. I don't want it. I want something else right now. Do you have the power to get that right now? That other thing? I don't know but I'm going to try to find out I'm going to go through my you know my tricks and at what at what point does the mind recognize huh maybe this isn't one of these situations where I should try the strategy of experience substitution Maybe this is an example of the kind of situation where maybe I could actually look a little bit more deeply into my resistance to this difficult experience that I'm having. And actually kind of investigate that. What is the experience of investigating investigating, looking in real time, real moment, my own experience of not wanting this to happen and insisting it has to be different. Does the mind recognize that as diluted craving? Better known as suffering? So this is part of the process of learning to let go. Learning to investigate what's really going on and learning to let go of resistance to this flow of changing causes and conditions that are creating the real-time experience that is known. It's not the only strategy, but it's a main one. Mm, you're gonna have so much fun. You'll have lots of dukkha to look at, lots of pleasant experiences to cling to, (laughs) that turn into dukkha when you cling to them. But you know, this is all about learning to know your own experience in real time, come to understand it for what it is, how it is in real time, and learn how to relate skillfully to it. How to know, connect to it, how to know it with wise intention. How to understand it when it's there. How to respond with self-compassion and wisdom. How to relate to it. How to relate to it. How How to develop a mind that is unconditionally loyal. that responds with self-support to difficulty and distress and that doesn't collapse with unpleasant experience that's free to enjoy what's beautiful and onward leading and pleasant you'll see May the benefit of the practice that we've done here today by offering and hearing this talk be a cause and condition for our own awakening and for that of all beings everywhere.